Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this gathering this evening to be together, to dive into your word, and to allow you to speak to us through it. You are the word made flesh, and so each time we open the pages of scripture, we encounter you. And so we pray, Lord, that We would each have our ears open and attentive to receive whatever message you have in store for us. You knew each one of us would be here tonight, and you have a unique, specific message for each of us to hear. Help us to be focused. We ask that you remove any worry, anxiety, any distraction from our minds or our lives in this moment so that we can lay this next hour at your feet and simply be open to receive whatever the Spirit inspires and whatever we are moved to share. We pray, God, that you would allow us, as always, to be drawn in deeper relationship with you, that this would not just be a study of words, but it would be uh, a deeper encounter with you and how you're inviting us to be uh, your disciples. And we ask that we would be good hearers of the word and better doers, and that we would allow this time to be yours and that it would be blessed. Bless all those on our minds and hearts, all those who could not be here, all those we know who are ill and need of healing. We pray for... uh, our families, especially those areas of our families where we need reconciliation. Pray for our nation and our world in the areas we need reconciliation and healing. And we pray, Lord, that um, all of this would be done with a deeper devotion to your most sacred heart. We pray all of these things with your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So good evening. We are in Luke chapter 23, verses 35 to 43. So Luke 23. 35, Luke 23, 35. And that is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, also nicknamed the Feast of Christ the King. So this Sunday is the end of the liturgical year, the end of the church calendar. And as a result, it being the last day of the Catholic year, we're going to hear about a lot of the last things or messages about the last things. And this gospel, uh, though not very apocalyptic, comes from the scene of Jesus on the cross talking about us being with him, or at least a character in this uh, gospel, being with him in paradise. Uh, Something you've probably heard before, um, the uh, narrative of the good thief or the repentant thief on the cross next to Jesus. And so we're going to read just this short section from verse 35 to 43. Act as though you've never heard it before, as if this is a brand new story for you. Pay attention, especially engaging your senses in the text. Imagine you're there. What do you hear? What do you smell? What do you see? Uh, and, and just try and see this as if it's for the very first time. So our first time through, we're starting kind of in the middle of the section on the crucifixion, starting in verse 35 of chapter 23 of the Gospel of Luke. The people stood by and watched. The rulers, meanwhile, sneered at Jesus and said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the chosen one 
the Messiah of God. Even the soldiers jeered at him. As they approached to offer him wine, they called out, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself. Above him there was an inscription that read, This is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals hanging there reviled Jesus, saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other, however, rebuking him, said in reply, Have you no fear of God? For you are subject to the same condemnation. And indeed, we have been condemned justly, for the sentence we received corresponds to our crimes. But this man has done nothing criminal. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied to him, Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now we're going to read this a second time, as usual. And this second time, I invite you, now that you have a picture of the scene, try and focus now in on the words as you hear them. Follow along or close your eyes. Try and empty your mind of everything but the words. And when you hear a particular word or phrase that sparks something seemingly out of nowhere, uh, a train of thought, a memory, an idea resonates with you in your own life for some particular reason, pay attention to that. Reflect on it. That is how God may be speaking to you. So ask, what are you trying to say to me through this, Lord? Why are you reminding me of this? What are you trying to compel me to do? So listen for that word or phrase, as well as pay attention to anything that sparks a question. Beginning again in verse 35 of chapter 23 of Luke. The people stood by and watched. The rulers, meanwhile, sneered at Jesus and said, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the chosen one, the Messiah of God. Even the soldiers jeered at him. As they approached to offer him wine, they called out, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself. Above him there was an inscription that read, This is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals hanging there reviled Jesus, saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other, however, rebuking him, said in reply, Have you no fear of God, for you are subject to the same condemnation? And indeed, we have been condemned justly, for the sentence we received corresponds to our crimes, but this man has done nothing criminal. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied to him, Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you, as always, take a few moments to reflect back over the passage, especially anything that sparked a question, any of those words or phrases that stood out to you for any reason. We're going to spend about five or ten minutes at the tables you're at just discussing those things, asking whatever questions or commenting on whatever stood out to you. Uh, If you're watching this later or listening to it, please share with us what stood out to you in the comments. But for those of us here, we're going to do that with each other, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion and questions. So take about the next ten minutes with those at your tables. All right. What are some things that are standing out for you in this passage or questions that you have about what we have read? Michael. All right. He says, he replies to him, amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. But he 
died and then descended to the realm of the dead and then rose again and was on earth for 40 days and then he ascended into heaven. Mm-hmm. So we, thought, we were talking about how, like, you know, wherever Jesus is, that's, you know, where heaven is. Mm. And, you know, God is always, we're always present with God. <clears throat> so that was some of the answers we came up with. What's up with that verse? Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in uh, even though the word time here isn't used, but in Greek, there's two words for time. There's chronos, which is like chronological time, which is the time you just recounted, like three days, then 40 days, you know, uh, and so forth. And then there's the word kairos, which is um, kind of God's timing. It's kind of like in English when we say, um, you know, I feel like it's it's finally time for me to do this. Or such is the time, such as uh, times as this, you know, like kind of it's the appropriate time. It's like that kind of supernaturally or divinely appointed moment. And that's the time that's often used to describe God, that God is outside of our linear experience of time. So God is just as present to the beginning of creation as he is to us now, as he is to the end of all time. He's present to all of it simultaneously, which is kind of crazy, which means that when you pray, you can actually pray for people in the past, people in the future, and obviously people now. Because even though the past events have happened, you don't know if God knew that you were going to pray and is going to apply those graces to that thing that happened in the past. Kind of crazy. That's how, like, we could get into, like, astrophysics and stuff like that. I'm not going to do that and nerd out on you. But, um, you know, like, just that concept of God being outside of time. Very difficult for us to grasp, and it's a total mystery. We won't fully understand it until we can understand it to the best of our ability when we are in heaven. But, um, yeah, there's a difference there. So when he says, today you will be with me in paradise, he's talking about Kairos. Not like, in the next 24 hours, you and I are going to go on a little journey to heaven. You know, and we're like, okay, but wait a minute. You had an appointment in Sheol, and how are you going to make both of those, Jesus? Like, that, we're thinking in earthly time, right? Um, so it's more of the immediacy that, like, this is what's about to be completed and accomplished, and you will be able to live in the rewards of this immediately. Yeah? We found it interesting about who recognized Jesus as Jesus in this passage. Mm-hmm. It, wasn't the, it wasn't the soldiers, it wasn't the crowd, it wasn't the educated, it wasn't the rich. It was, it was the humble guy who was being executed. Yeah. And it's, it's like those kind of people were the people who recognized Jesus all throughout the gospel. Yeah. And it's here again. Yeah. I mean, and Jesus is a Messiah who is approachable. He's not a Messiah that is up in his ivory tower, you know, creating rules and making decrees and making everyone serve him, which is why he, his experience and his life is so antithetical to all of the leaders and the soldiers and all of those people who live life for themselves, for their own self-gratification, for their own attention. They're the ones who butt heads with Jesus the most because his lifestyle is very challenging for them. If he really is the Messiah, they can't accept that because then they have to change everything about them. Whereas those who are being you know, received by Jesus, those who are attracted to him, uh, they have nothing left to lose. And they're ready to change everything to follow Jesus. Um, so, yeah, it's the difference. Yeah, Alan. And, and we also, um, have you no fear of God? He says that as in, this is, this is mm. God right next to him. Right. Mm. And for... I mean, obviously, he's done something wrong. He's being put to death. But, and, you know, him knowing that, hey, this is, hey, look, that's God right there. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. That, you know, that's pretty cool that he's, I've done a lot of bad stuff, whatever, but, hey, God's right next to me here. So yeah. You better cool it. <laughs> yeah. And it is interesting. I mean, I we don't know what their crimes were. 
we imagine they must have been pretty heinous to warrant a capital punishment. But remember, they're even concerned about cru crucifying Jesus during the festival. And so how much more concern then of two more people? You know, it must have been pretty extraordinary circumstances to then allow for these two people to be crucified with Jesus. We only have this story in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we do have mention in the other Gospels of two thieves or criminals being crucified with Jesus, but both of them jeer at Jesus. Uh, both of them revile him and sneer at him. Only in Luke do we have this, um, this detail, this story. And Luke, remember, his whole idea, his whole uh, introduction to his gospel was to record everything accurately anew. So go out and interview, get eyewitness testimony from people who were actually there. And both Matthew and Mark, Mark had written first, Matthew was writing about the same time as Luke, they were not there at the foot of the cross. Only John, Mary Magdalene, some of the other women, uh, the mother Mary and some of the other, you know, uh, other disciples of Jesus, but none of the other 12. And so Luke probably got this as something that the others had missed because they had not been there. Interviewed someone, found out firsthand what had happened and reported that. And not only that, Luke's whole theme, remember Luke 19.10, the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. So the whole focus of Luke's gospel as someone who comes from a Gentile community is to show how Jesus comes to proclaim the kingdom to all people, not just the Jewish people, but to all. And so he has many more uh, ver uh, stories where Jesus is encountering women, Samaritans, uh, Gentiles, people outside of the religiously appropriate Jewish community, uh, and breaking down those barriers. That is a very, very common theme in the Gospel of Luke. And so it's no wonder why it shows up here in this Gospel and not in others. A little bit about these, these two guys. So um, we have names for them in church tradition. Um, the good thief is, is uh, called Dismas. Actually, he is Saint Dismas. He's a saint in the Catholic Church because we believe that we took Jesus at his word. Dismas actually did get to heaven. Uh, sometimes in the historical record, he's also named Demas or Dumachus, but most common is Dismas. Um, and he's called the good thief, the repentant thief, um, but he's an officially canonized saint in the Catholic Church. And then the, uh, the unrepentant sinner is Gestus. G-E-S-T-A-S. Those names uh, are, as I said, part of tradition. They come, I think, I think the earliest record of them is from an apocryphal writing called the Gospel of Nicodemus. It's also nicknamed the Acts of, of Pilate. And it's dated somewhere around like the fourth century or something. It's much later. Someone tried to pose it as a biblical text, um, probably to say something heretical about Jesus. But there, there's a, that tradition shows up that they have these names. Okay, And there's that's a very common thing. Like in the Eastern tradition, uh, there's a name for the woman at the well. Her name is Fotina. Uh, and in the, the series, The Chosen, about Jesus that they've been you know, filming and recording, they use that name for the woman at the well. That's what they call her is Fotina. And that's been a name that's been very ancient for her in the East that we've lost in the West. But if you Google the woman at the well, her, that's the name that comes up. So, um, so we still refer to them as Dismas and Gestus. Um, there, I heard some people talking about the cross in the church. Um, and Monsignor always used to love this, that when you're in the church, when the lights are on, it illuminates the cross, so it makes two shadows on the wall behind it. You can actually see almost like a permanent iteration of the two thieves in shadow behind Jesus, which he always thought was really cool. Um, interesting thing about, uh, some interesting stories about Dismas, there's actually legends about him. Um, some people think that, you know, he, he's the repentant thief because he always had this good streak in him, even though he got caught up in the wrong crowd. So stories started to circulate about him that he was kind of like a Robin Hood figure in Judea. 
that he would steal from the rich and give to the poor. But my favorite legend about him is that when he was young, um, maybe about five or six years old, his father was the captain of a band of robbers. And uh, one day they come upon this family traveling to Egypt, and it turns out it's the Holy Family, Mary and Joseph with baby Jesus. And they're about to rob them and leave them destitute. And apparently the child, Dismas, is so taken with the beauty of the Christ child that he convinces his father to let them go. And that this, 30-some years later, is their reunion. Yeah, it's just an interesting piece of, of, you know, apocryphal church legend. You know, it's not church teaching, obviously, but there's some of those cool legends out there about how Dismas is connected um, and, and what happened to him before this. So, yeah, a little bit about the two of them. Other questions, thoughts on this? Other reflections, things that stood out to you? Greg? A couple things. First off, you mentioned that Luke was the only apostle at the crucifixion. Do we have any idea where the other ones were? Well, he wasn't there. Luke wasn't there. John was there. But Luke, yeah, Luke set out to get eyewitness testimonies. So he does very little of his own insertion in here. Everything in the Gospel of Luke is a series of him piecing together eyewitness testimonies. Um, the other ones ran away. They were frightened. They were scared. They went away. You know, St. Saint, Saint Peter even, they all fled, except for John. John was there at the foot of the cross. We read that in the Gospel of John because he is the one who is given Mary as his mother. Um, and takes her into his home to take care of her. And that's one of the scriptural passages we cite to know that Mary is given to all of us as our mother um, as a symbol, you know, that moment being a symbolic moment of that church teaching. So, um, yeah, but the rest totally abandoned Jesus, hid, were scared, afraid of the, their same fate, maybe even just grieving the fact that they could do nothing about the fact that their, their beloved rabbi, who they knew was the savior, but they thought was going to be a political leader, they had totally messed missed that or messed it up and were just, you know, hiding in complete shock and, you know, destitute feelings of grief that they couldn't bear to see that happen to him. So we don't know. Uh, thankfully, they came back, you know, uh, except for Judas Iscariot, obviously. But, um, you know, they all returned um, and were still in community with one another, trying to figure out what to do even before Jesus revealed himself to be resurrected. They were gathering together in the upper room. They went and got Thomas when he wasn't there. You know, they saw him again a week later. We see that in the Gospel of John. So they didn't go all over the place. Maybe several of his disciples probably did. But the, the apostles, the faithful apostles, the 11, were still around. They just weren't there. Yeah. The other, the other thing I want to say is, in terms of uh, last week's Gospel, they said the ruler sneered at Jesus and said he saved others. Let him save himself, but he is a chosen one, the Christ of God. He and the soldiers jeered at him. So, and think, so, and, you know, we kind of think like, you know, the Jews, the leadership are the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're just doing their job, they're very devout. Because we think of last week's gospel, mm -hmm. and Jesus said, many people will come out as false prophets. They will come out in my name. Mm -hmm. So maybe these guys are thinking, you know, well, here's just another one. Yeah. You know, here's another thing. He's a great guy. He's going to die, and that'll be it. It's like the other one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's a, a good historical argument to be made that the Pharisees were just very, what would you say, um, well intentioned but poor execution type of religious leaders. You know, they had this devout, you know, devotion and love for the law, but they didn't execute it in the right way. 
you know, they imposed even more laws on people. They got overzealous about the letter of the law and things being black and white instead of ministering in what we call a pastoral way, you know, the one-on-one, -on -one, the meeting people in the gray area, understanding their situation. It was very cut and dry, you know, good or bad, pure or impure, clean or unclean. And that can get into very, you know, um, very fundament fundamentalist or very, um, very divisive types of religious ideas. Um, but... You know, I, no one on either side of that wakes up in the morning and is like, I'm going to be evil today. You know, they think what they're doing is for the best religious intentions, that they are following Jesus faithfully in the way that they think they're supposed to. You know, so shows that even if we are following Jesus, showing up to church every week, doing the churchy things, we have to be on our guard against the fact that we can still do that wrong. It's not about the fact that we're doing it. We have to also ask, am I doing it in the way that God has called me to do it? Am I doing it in the way that Jesus revealed? Am I doing it in the right way? That's bringing unity, bringing abundance, overflowing into other people's lives, blessing other people's lives, bringing healing and unity, or is it creating this divisiveness? Is it pushing people in my life who aren't religious further away? Is it creating divisions in my family? Those things we have to watch out for and be wary of, you know, and, and pay attention to, are we being too... You know, pharisaical in our own faith. Is that a word? Should be. I think it is. I've heard it used. I didn't invent it. Yeah. You can adjective things, you know? I like verbing and adjective things that aren't verbs and adjectives. Yes? We always live our life asking ourselves, why do the innocents, why does innocent have to suffer? Mm -hmm. And here you have Jesus innocent on the cross. Yeah. That's the good that came from it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's three times here where they say, save yourself, right? Three times. You know, um, the, the rulers jeered at him, let him save himself. And the soldiers jeered at him, save yourself. And then Gestus says, if you are the Messiah, save yourself and us. By the way, he wants to be included in that. But three times, kind of reminiscent of the three temptations of the desert, in the desert, right? Could Jesus save himself? Yes, absolutely, he could. But he will not accomplish his mission in that way. You know, and so oftentimes we might be asking God, like, Lord, save me, save me and do this. And we fill in the blank and we have our particular request. And we don't realize that if God were to do that thing we're asking for, we would not be saved. In fact, we might end up being destroyed because he can see the whole picture and we cannot. You know, we have a, we have a very close view, especially in moments of difficulty and suffering. And he has the 10,000 foot view. He can see the whole picture. You know, it's the image this was painted for me in a podcast today that I was listening to. I think it was Father Mike's homily, but it was, it's, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings series. At the end of the, the trilogy, the whole, you know, point of the Lord of the Rings series is that they find this ring and they have to bring it back to this volcano to destroy it. And there's this creature named Gollum who's been totally succumbed to the, the power of the ring and he follows it everywhere. And at the end, the ring is thrown into the volcano and he dives in after it and is holding on to the ring, refusing to let go. This is all he wanted. This is what he thinks his salvation is. And he's so focused on that that he doesn't even realize the fact that he's fallen into the lava and is now melting with the ring. And you just see his face like so happy that he finally has the ring as he melts into the lava. And that's us with our sin, right? Our stubbornness, our requests of God. We're so convinced that this, this is what will save us. This is what you need to give me, Lord. And we don't realize, like, holding on to this is going to be the thing that destroys us. You know, Jesus' mission is to destroy sin, to destroy sin and death. And if at the end of time we're still holding on to our sin, guess who's going to be destroyed along with it? 
us. If we're not willing to let go, we're going to go to the same destination as that sin. We're going to be destroyed with it. Other reflections, questions? Chris? I found that pretty interesting that, you know, um, the good good guy who was on the cross, Uh um, that that Jesus met him at that spot. Mm -hmm. You know, that we don't know his story, but like I'm sure he probably didn't do some good things and and but God just had him come to the cross to be mm. Jesus at that moment. Yeah. And to be saved and he had to turn apart right there. Kind of like the tax collector. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but talk about like you just kind of sparked something in my mind I never thought about before. Talk about like the most inconvenient time to have to evangelize, right? <laughs> you know, like has this ever happened to you? Like, you know, like you're you're all about okay, like all right, Lord, like send me people to share my faith with, and then it's when you're like running late, you just got in a car accident, you got like coffee spilled all over you, and someone's like, oh, you have a cross in your rearview mirror. I used to be capping. You're like, really, right now? Are you serious, Lord? You know? And like, I we look at the cross, and it's like Jesus very well in his humanity could have been like, are you serious? Like, you one more, really? After all of this, you know, like right now, but he never stopped. Even to the very last breath, he never stopped his mission to seek and to save the lost. Even in that position. As painful as that. I mean, if we understood the gravity and the, the, the pain, the excruciating pain, that's where we get the word excruciating from crucifixion, the excruciating pain of crucifixion, it's impressive that a conversation is even happening, that they're even able to talk. Okay, because when you when you're crucified. These nails are driven through the radial nerves in your hands. I mean, it's an immense amount of pain. You're being held up. Usually your shoulders get dislocated about six inches from where your arm span usually is. And, and historical note, if you have an image of, your, of the crucifixion that you really like in your head, I'm going to spoil it for you, uh, probably not nails through your feet. Historically, that's not how, the, how they did it. They would bind your feet with rope, and there'd be a little a piece of wood called a saddle that you could kind of prop up on because... All of the edema and the blood loss and the shock in your body that would be happening, slowly uh, you, your body would go into a state called, uh, you would get pleural effusion and pericardial effusion where liquid fluid would build up in the pericardial wall of your heart and in your lungs. And you would slowly drown on your own fluid, uh, your own body's fluid to try, that's like trying to heal itself. And so in order to take a breath, you would have to push up on this saddle and try and take a breath. And then imagine on top of that, all of the torture that Jesus endured, all of the lashes, all the blood loss, the crown of thorns, all of that, simply to just take a breath, to push up and take a breath, to survive for 10, 15, 30 seconds longer. And then to utter a word, to utter a sentence, like all of the effort that would be caused, that would be needed to just say a word after all that he had been through. And yet, in that the most inconvenient and impossible seeming time, to be prompted to share the faith, to to evangelize. Jesus gives us a model that even in this moment, he chose to keep going. Even in this moment, he chose to stay on mission. Do we do that? Because I know in the most minor inconvenience, I'll be like, I'm not talking to this person. You know? Like I remember, I literally remember one time I was walking out of Chick-fil-A Chick-fil-A right up here. And I had all the time in the world. Like I, there was nothing, but it was a totally fine day. And I I had my Chick-fil-A, I was getting in my car, and there was a car parked next to me. Um, and so my driver's side is here. And the passenger seat, the window's open. And there's someone in the passenger seat. 
and they have crutches, and I can see their crutches. And I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, like so clearly, Matt, you need to go introduce yourself to this person and pray for them to be healed, and they're going to be healed. And immediately, I had my Chick-fil-A in my hand, and I went, nope. And I opened my door, and I got in my car, and I drove off. Because it was just too intimidating for me. And I was, like, my day was going fine. It wasn't like I was in a rush. Or I was, it was just that, like being intimidated by the ask of the Holy Spirit. And imagine all the other times in our lives, your life and mine, where we have situations like that, where it's like, oh, you know, I would, but it's just, I'm so busy. Or like, I, people are bringing up this faith thing in my class right now, and I just, I don't want to be the one to stand up. Like, I've had a hard day. I'm not feeling good. I, I, you know, I didn't get enough sleep or whatever it is. Or it's in the workplace, and I've got a deadline to meet. You know, it's never at the convenient time. Never at the convenient moment. You know, if being faithful was all about having faith when it's easy, then everyone would, would do it. But Jesus tells us time and time again, you will be persecuted for my name, for my name's sake. I did not come to bring peace, but to bring division, to set father against uh, son and mother against daughter. Like to do things that would create people to have to make a choice, to demand a response. And so we have to be on our guard for the moments where it's inconvenient. In fact, pay attention to those moments. Because I think the devil purposely makes those moments inconvenient and more seemingly inconvenient to us so that we'll say no. We'll say no to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Because the devil can't defeat the Holy Spirit, but he can make us pay attention to something else. And that, I think, is a really good point from what Chris was sharing, you know, just to be thinking about in our own life, those moments of inconvenience. And when you have that moment where you're like, really now? Pay attention to that. Like, remember even Jesus, in the moment of his crucifixion, the most painful death possible, stayed on mission till the very last moment. We can too. Other thoughts? Questions? Well, say, come up, please, please share. There's a couple other things I think are interesting about this. And one of those is, first of all, I just want to draw an appreciation to this last line of this, of this gospel. Because not only is this the last line, this is the last word of the gospel we hear in the entire liturgical year. Like, think about that. The entire church calendar is culminating to this feast of Christ the King, talking about the end of time, the culmination of all of salvation history. And what does the church want you to hear last in its words of scripture? Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Like, what an encouraging note of hope to end the liturgical year on. That that's what Mother Church wants us to hear, wants us to remember. As we go into a new liturgical year and into the Advent season, we anticipate the birth of Jesus historically, and when he comes again and his birth into our life each and every day, to be reminded of that hope. Even though we may have apocalyptic readings, and they'll continue the first Sunday of Advent, we'll still have like these anticipatory readings about Jesus coming again. We don't get like baby Jesus until like second week of Advent, third week of Advent. So it'll sound very kind of doom and gloom, fire and brimstone-y, but this is how the church wants us to remember what everything has been building toward, hope. Today you'll be with me in paradise. That word paradise in Greek, paradiso, it actually comes from a Persian word, and it means a walled garden. And in fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, anytime they talk about the Garden of Eden, they use the same word. Paradise being the Garden of Eden. So think about that imagery for a moment. There's actually one ancient church tradition that says that Golgotha, 
where uh, the name of the area, the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified, is named Golgotha and became a place of death because it was where the Garden of Eden was. And when the Garden of Eden was corrupted, it became this kind of marking territory of the death and the suffering and the toil that is now part of humanity. And even where um, some traditions speculate or say, like as a legend, that's where Adam is buried. So think about that. The first man, Adam, the new man, Jesus, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they eat the fruit and sin enters the world. And now this, there's many artistic depictions of the cross as the new tree, the tree of life, or even this new tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens? There's a remarrying of the fruit to Jesus's lips, the wine that is offered to him to reconcile, to bring right what was made wrong in the Garden of Eden. But that, that, that phrase, walled garden, as I said, um, it comes from a Persian word. And it comes from a custom that um, if a Persian king wanted to show you that you had found favor with him, he would invite you for a walk in the royal garden. It was like a cultural thing to do. Someone would come to you and say, the king would like to walk with you in his garden. And that's the language that's used in the Garden of Eden. That God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. That is the paradise we're being invited into. We're being invited into a restored creation of the Garden of Eden. God's plan A is still his plan A. It's taken him a long time to get there because we keep messing it up with sin, but that's still where he wants us, is in paradise with him. And when the new heaven and the new earth are created in the fullness of time, that's what we are going to receive. All of the best of earth will be magnified, will be resurrected in some way, and will meet that new Garden of Eden, that new paradise, that new temple, new Jerusalem, that new connection and relationship with God so he can simply walk with us in the garden as he always desired to. That is the note of hope that we end the year on. That is a note of hope we should end each day on. You know, I don't know about you, but when you're sitting in your bed late at night, maybe you're thinking about all the things that need to get done tomorrow. You're worried about all the things that didn't get done today, wondering if you have time to do it tomorrow. You were thinking about you know, the, the years you've lived, and maybe there are fewer now in front of you as there were behind you. Maybe you think about the worries in your family. Maybe you think about finances, this and that. But what a great note from the church that we can take for ourselves. Do we end each day on a note of hope? Maybe each day praying over ourselves this phrase, allowing us to hear that in the words of Jesus. Amen. I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because as we say, it may not be today, chronos time. But it will be today in Cairo's time because God is just as present to us now as he will be when he calls us home. To pray that over ourselves, to pray that over our family, over our home, over our worries. What a great, hopeful, and encouraging word to end this entire year on. This journey through the Gospel of Luke, this journey with Jesus through the liturgical year. That's what the, the church, the wisdom of the liturgical calendar is, is to be kind of a journey through the life of Jesus. We're accompanying him through his life every single year. And to end on this note, is something very beautiful. And I don't know about you. This might just be, I you know, maybe have a more snarky, critical point of view. But I don't particularly, you know, think Catholics compared to many other denominations are more hopeful. I don't know. That's just my perception. I don't think we're like crazy less hopeful. But, you know, we have those phrases like Catholic guilt. You know, I've talked about it. I don't like that. We have those, you know, things that make us maybe not as uh, appear to others as charismatic or as joyful. You know, St. Francis even wrote, you know, like, we are an Easter people, and yet we look like we're constantly stuck in Lent. You know, uh, he wrote in a papal encyclical that we are uh, plagued by the, uh, a church of sourpusses. 
you know, he even talked about couch potatoism or something like that. Like that's in, in like actual papal documents, like couch potato, sourpuss, like that's why I love Pope Francis. He speaks in a way I can understand. But, um, you know, like that's something that we have to recognize. You know, are we a people who are a people of Easter joy, of resurrection joy? And that when you think about the end of your life or the end of time, what is your initial response? Fear, worry, all the things I need to do. Oh, I got to get to confession. You know, I need to revise my will, you know, put all things in order. Or is it finally, finally I get to go home. And if it's not, why not? You know, I think that's why all throughout scripture, that most repeated phrase is do not be afraid. And some people find that encouraging. And don't be afraid, just to remind us, like in our moments of fear, I don't find it encouraging. I find it terrifying. Because God knew we would need to hear that over and over and over again because he knew there would be a lot to be afraid of. He knows we need to be keep, keep continue to be reminded of it because of how much there is to fear if we get caught up in it. Do we have that lens of hope? Another interesting note beyond that is that here we have uh, some of our church uh, kind of, I don't know, theological evidence or support for a church teaching called Baptism by Desire. Anyone ever heard of this before, Baptism by Desire? So Baptism by Desire, you can look this up in the Catechism. It's in uh, paragraph 1260 of the Catechism. But basically the traditional way in which uh, people are baptized in the church is through water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? But notice here, Dismas, I mean, he doesn't even really repent, he just acknowledges that he did something wrong and he deserves the punishment. But he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He has a desire to be with Jesus. And then Jesus doesn't say, oh, that's great. Okay, so come and register over at, you know, St. Martha and Mary's in Bethany. And they'll get your information. And uh, in, in three months, RCIA is going to start. It's going to be great. And a couple years, like, we'll get, no, today, today you will be with me in paradise. And so why is that? Why is it that it seems like Dismas got the short route, like he was in the fast lane here? And that's because the church acknowledges, yes, this is the way in which Jesus ta taught us and revealed to us uh, the doorway of salvation is baptism. Okay, so as Catholics, we believe in order to be saved that we need to be baptized in the Trinitarian formula, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, many Christian denominations do that, not just Catholicism. So we don't believe salvation is exclusively within the Catholic Church. We do believe that the fullness of truth is within the Catholic Church, but that there are many other expressions of that truth and smaller glimpses of it in many other denominations. However, there are instances when people do not have the opportunity to be baptized by water. And so the Church, in one sense, has said... And you should know this because I, I, I pray you never have this opportunity, but I also, if you do, it's, I imagine it probably is kind of awesome that actually any person, even if they are not Catholic or not baptized, can baptize another person. Did you know that? Any human person, doesn't matter who they are, if someone is in danger of death and all they have to do is want or will what the church wills when it baptizes, you could literally take a Dasani water bottle and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit on the side of the road, and that will be a legitimate baptism. They will not get rebaptized later. In their baptismal record, it will say, this person got baptized on the I-5 highway while they were in a car accident in danger of death. Like, that's what it will say. That's, the, that's how desperately 
the church wants everyone to be safe. That's how desperately the church tries to live out this missionary call that Jesus lived until his last breath, even in that excruciating moment on the cross to have that moment with Dismas, so that any person can baptize. But even then, if someone is not able to be baptized, there are two other ways that the church says baptism is possible. One is called baptism by blood, and that is if someone is killed for their expression of Christian faith, but it was not yet brought to fruition in baptism, they're considered a martyr, and they're considered baptized by blood, that their willingness to give up their life for the Christian faith. This happens in, in many areas of the world where Christians are being martyred. You know? And we may think of that as a very ancient thing. There have been more people killed uh, for their Christian faith in the last hundred years than every century before combined. So we may think of martyrs like, oh, that's the early church when Rome was persecuting Christians. No, it's happening more now than every century combined previously. In places where the church is persecuted, especially in Asian countries and Middle Eastern countries, uh, countries that lean more in the communist or very totalitarian in their regimes, like North Korea, you know, even in some parts of Russia, China, things like that, churches underground. Priests aren't readily available. Sacraments aren't available every Sunday. You can't go to daily mass. You're lucky if maybe you get to monthly or once, once or twice a year mass. And so things like confession, baptism are not as commonly taught or given, even though anyone can baptize, it's not as, as uh, readily available or accessible, and people, maybe people don't even know that, that anyone can baptize. And so if that is a reality for them, they can be baptized, or they are considered baptized by blood if they die before they have that chance. Uh, and then lastly is this category, and that is baptism by desire. And it's an interesting part of the catechism because it says to, something to the effect of uh, that a person had they not been introduced to Jesus, had they not been revealed the gospel message of the good news, but if they responded to the level of truth that they had been revealed and lived their life with virtue, they can be considered baptized by desire, meaning if they had known the truth, they would have desired baptism. That's where it comes from. And part of the scriptural evidence for this is here. Not baptized by water. I guess you could say maybe baptized by blood but expresses that desire when more of that truth has been revealed. So if you ever have questions like, well, you know, if God wants everyone to be saved, then why does he create people, you know, in these remote tribes in Africa or on islands where they never know Jesus or they live these different lives and no one is there to preach the gospel to them? Do they just die and go to hell? You can go to the catechism, paragraph 1257, and say, no. They live their life in a virtuous way according to the truth that's been revealed to them. The possibility of baptism is open to them. Says shortly thereafter, in uh, or actually before that, in uh, that's in 1260. In 1257, it says that God bound the sac or God bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, but God is not bound by His sacraments. Okay? God bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, but God is not bound by His sacraments. He can work in whatever way He desires. He can save people in whatever way possible even if they have not had the opportunity to be baptized, even if the fullness of truth cannot or has never been presented to them. So an interesting little note there and a opportunity for us all to kind of remember that responsibility that we have, uh, kind of like almost having that mentality. Anyone in here an EMT or a medical professional where you are legally required to pull over if you see like an accident on the side of the road? No? Yeah? Okay. So yeah, if you, I don't know if you know this, but EMTs and people like if they see an accident, they are legally required to pull over and to see if anyone needs help. Okay, anyone who's like a trained medical professional or in a role where they would be an emergency response. You are all in that role when it comes to the church. 
That if you see an accident, you see a situation, it should kind of be our compulsion to get out and say, is everyone here baptized? You know, maybe not that directly, but like to see, you know, any situation we walk into, especially if life is being threatened, especially if someone's on their deathbed. Anyone been baptized? My father-in-law was, uh, was baptized by his dad. Not in a uh, life-threatening situation. If you knew my father-in-law's dad, who's no longer with us, uh, you would just know the spicy individual that he is, and he just decided one day to baptize him, and he did it in the proper way, and it was a valid baptism. And that was what, you know, was recorded as his baptism. When he entered into the church, that was what was on the record. That his dad baptized him with a bottle of water using the right formula once upon a time when he was a baby. So we have the ability to do that because God desires all people to be saved. He desires all people to be able to be with him today in paradise. What a gift that is. Any other final thoughts, questions, reflections, things that stood out to you in this passage? John. I always feel a sense of joy and how good it is just to be at Mass mm -hmm. when we go through that whole, whole Eucharistic prayer and receive the Eucharist. And, and I think it just occurred to me that's, that's why it feels so good yeah. to be in there and receive communion and to uh, it's one of your chances to be with Jesus. Yeah. And if you were at Catholicism 101 yesterday, I talked a little bit about you know, the, the, the Passover meal. And how uh, it's not recorded here in Luke, they offer him wine here, but in Matthew, they offer him wine twice, and he drinks it the, the second time, right before he dies, and he says, it is finished, or literally in, in the Latin, consumatum es, it is consummated, it has come to its fruition. And what he's talking about there is the end of this new Passover meal that he disrupts on the night of the Last Supper. And he receives that last uh, drop of wine, because at the Last Supper he says, I will not drink of the, of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it new in the kingdom, in paradise. And then he references that here. And so just as everything went wrong with food, Jesus makes everything right again with food. Comes to us in simple bread so that we can be reconciled with him, turn away from sin, and to be experiencing some level of that experience of heaven on earth at Mass. That's what the church teaches happens at every Mass, that literally heaven touches earth, the heavens are open, and the saints and the angels are all there present praying with us. There was a woman who, I, I think she was falsely believed to be a, a, a saint, but she was a woman or a mystic um, or something like that. But someone in, in, I think this is a South American woman who had a vision, and I, I'm very flaky on who she is. She might still be alive, but she had a vision where she was at mass and she was revealed everyone's guardian angel. She could see everyone's guardian angel. And at the moment of the uh, procession, the presentation of the gifts, when people bring up the, the, the bread and the wine, she said she saw everyone's guardian angel come out of the pew and go up like it were communion. However, she said most people's guardian angels were sad because their hands were clasped and they had nothing to offer. They brought nothing with them to Mass to give to the Lord. Jesus died so that we might live. And the way that we experience that life is in the Eucharist. That's why he says, I am the bread of life. And so this can transform, when we look at a crucifix, it can transform our experience of mass, it can transform our daily prayer, whether we're clinging to hope or clinging to worry, it can transform the way in which we evangelize in those moments where even it is super inconvenient, 
And it can even transform how we're able to be present in even the most dire of circumstances because even though we may not be a trained medical professional or we may not be able to help, we can baptize even if the moment calls for it. That in every moment, we are being called to be on mission just as Jesus did until his very last. Are we living up to that mission? Jesus is calling us to it. He's giving us this promise of hope. And there are many other people in this world who need hope and do not don't know where to look for it. Or they think that the door to hope doesn't involve the church or that's been closed on them because of some previous judgment or previous experience. Are we able to enter into their lives with compassion and reopen that door or show them a new way, reroute them to another door so that they can be welcomed back and receive that message of hope? That today you can be with Jesus too in paradise. You can experience that hope today in the Eucharist, and living out your baptismal call, and living in community, and living in graced, prayerful relationship with him. But first, we need to be modeling that. Because if we say it, and then our lives don't look super joyful, they're not going to believe it. They're not going to want to come and receive what we have. If it doesn't look like it's changing our lives. So let's let it change our lives. Let's let it fill us with hope. Let's let it be something that compels us to walk in that walled garden with our Lord, who's inviting us to spend time with him. Let's spend time with our King this week in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this study, this community, this word. And we pray that you would allow us to recognize the ways that we need to repent, the ways that we are deserving of being in the positions of Dismas and Gestus on the cross for our sins, and yet you took that spot for us. Despite being innocent and freely having the ability to save yourself, you chose to bear that punishment to show us that there is no place you would not go for us. You would go to the ends of the earth, to the depths of hell, to the most excruciating places of pain and misery to save us. Help us not to lose sight of that. Help us to recognize we worship a king who does not lord his power over us, but who gives it away. We pray, God, that you would bless us each in the ways that we most need it. And allow us to anticipate you each day with hope. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.